This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd and we're going to start this week's episode with just a little bit of housekeeping, so please bear with me. We seem to have picked up a decent number of new listeners recently, and so to all of you who are listening for the first time, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to have you here. To those of you who've been listening for a while, thank you for joining us each week. And as always, if you're enjoying the show and would like to support it, we'd love it if you could take the time to rate Deep Dive on whichever podcasting platform you're using. It helps others who are interested in Japan and what's going on here to discover the show. After last week's episode on Japan's border closure situation, we had a whole load of people writing in and contacting us, so thank you to all of you who did. If you'd like to reach out to us at any point, the show's email is deepdive at japantimes.co.jp and our Twitter handle is at japandeepdive. Lastly, if you'd like to receive email notifications every time a new episode comes out, join our mailing list. Instructions for how to do that can be found in the episode notes. Now to the show. Before I started Deep Dive, one of my roles at the Japan Times was as the editor of its food section. There I had the pleasure to work closely with Robbie Swinnerton and Melinda Joe, who are my two guests on this week's episode. Robbie has been writing Tokyo Food File, his restaurant review column for the Japan Times, since 1998. And Melinda has been writing her column Kampai Culture, which is all about Japan's drinking culture since 2011. Together, they make a pretty formidable pair and have well over 30 years experience eating, drinking and writing about Tokyo's food scene. I wanted to talk to Robbie and Melinda this week as it's currently an incredibly precarious time for the restaurant and hospitality industry, not just in Tokyo, but also across Japan and the rest of the world. So on this episode, we hear from Robbie and Melinda about what makes Tokyo's food scene so good, how coronavirus has impacted the business and where we go from here. Just one important bit of extra context for all of our listeners listening from outside of Japan. Uh, though dining activities have been somewhat limited in Japan due to the coronavirus, the country hasn't seen the long-term and widespread restaurant closures that have taken place in other countries. You can still go to restaurants here, and since the state of emergency ended, most restaurants have reopened, though many of them are in a more limited format. Now to my conversation with Melinda and Robbie. Robbie Swinnerton, Melinda Joe, welcome to Deep Dive. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So Tokyo has topped the list of cities around the world with the most number of Michelin stars consecutively for the last several years, beating up Paris, London, New York and, and other cities renowned for their food culture. So what is it that makes Tokyo's food scene such a gastronomic phenomenon? And not just Tokyo, but Japan as a whole. It's a deep question. Mm. I think you've got to start with the size of Tokyo. I mean, it's just so huge. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a third of the population of, of, of Japan lives within a you know a hundred kilometer radius of central Tokyo. So there are just incredibly large number of restaurants in Tokyo. It depends how you how you re- define restaurants, or uh, but anything between you know, one hundred and fifty thousand to more if you add the bars and, and snacks and. Mm, so, so so there are more there are more restaurants and bars then it's possible to eat out in a single human lifetime, even if you were to go out every single breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah, because yeah. there are new, new places opening all the time, even now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and then there's the history, which is that you know, people live so far away that they need to eat in the evening, they need to eat at lunchtime, of course, because it's a, a, a transient population. And also, they're, they're really they're going back centuries, people used to eat out a lot because they didn't necessarily have kitchen equipment at home and, and, and especially in the, in the, in the low city in, in Stamachi where people just ate 
basically from street carts or from little stalls on the side of the road. And that evolved into the, the, the restaurant culture that we know today with sushi and tempura and, and noodles and stuff, which all started as street carts. So, um, history, history lesson. <laughs> okay, so, so bringing it forward. Bring it, bring it forward. I've got to say, in 1980, Japan was not on the world's um, radar, really, when it comes to food. It was like, yeah, that's sort of sushi, raw fish, you really eat that stuff. Mm. Uh, I mean, literally, I was asked that question when I arrived in Japan in 1980. I mean, by my, by my family back in England. It's like, you eat that stuff? And um, Now you get the reverse question, the, the question from the Japanese saying, can you eat raw fish? That's, that's, no, that's, that's so old now. That's so old. I, still, I, still, I still get it every now and then. You know, and really? People yeah. don't even ask me, can I use chopsticks <laughs> these days? Yeah, they get very blasey about foreigners now, I think, Japan, especially. Depends um, where you go. Uh, yeah. So basically, anyway, mass, um, massive number of restaurants, but also high quality. That quality goes for the quality of presentation, quality of service, the way people treat their customers, and also quality in the way the food arrives from the field or the, or the sea to the city and then to the restaurants. It's taken care of beautifully. Um, I can't compare it to anywhere else. I, I know a little bit about the way it's done in England and, or Britain, and I would rather be here to eat my fresh fish, my, uh, my vegetables, my beautifully sorted vegetables, my, <laughs> my, you know, everything. I know you're a big fan of rice. I'm if, a day without rice is not a day is not a proper day. <laughs> <laughs> Melinda, what is it about Tokyo that makes it a really exciting f- city for you in terms of its food? Oh gosh, I mean, again, this is a really huge question, and Robbie touched on a lot of things. Um, but I guess, like, um, if we're thinking about it in terms of you know modern times, one of the things that I really appreciate about Tokyo is the diversity that we have. And by diversity, I mean that um, not just the types of cuisine that we can find, but also the fact that we have so many different kinds of restaurants, like restaurants that have a history of more than 100 years, side by side with like, you know, exciting new developments. Yeah, I think that variety is key. What I really love about Tokyo and to be honest, in fact, any Japanese city that I've ever eaten out in is that across the board, no matter what price range you're eating at, it always seems to be absolutely delicious. Uh, you know, whether you're paying 500 yen for a one coin meal or 30,000 yen for top flight sushi, it's nearly always excellent. I think that um, the standard is is generally very high, like the base standard is very high of quality. And that also goes back to something that Robbie said about the care that is put into select, well, first into producing um, the ingredients and then the distribution channel all the way up to the restaurants. And then, you know, then the people at the restaurants, the people making the food, the chefs, they really are invested in presenting the ingredients at their best. So that kind of sensitivity is also something that really raises the bar for restaurants in Tokyo. I started off with a very broad question about food culture, but is there anything specifically right now that's making you excited about the Tokyo food scene or that's made you really excited over the last couple of years? Um, there's such a cross-fertilization between chefs, between um, – it didn't exist, I'd say maybe maximum 15 years ago, even 10 years ago. It was, like, it was still a very fragmented scene. And now the chefs get together, they, they collaborate, they cross-fertilize ideas. They – not only inside Tokyo or within Japan too, but especially in Tokyo, but also you know abroad too. They're, they're traveling around the world um, they're – they're doing pop-ups here. They're doing forehand dinners there. And so 
there's this amazing fermentation, let's say, uh, 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 development of ideas when it comes to food. And I think that's what makes the whole, what, what makes being, being alive today in Tokyo so, so, so great, because that exists all around the world. I mean, many places you have like centers of, of cuisine and, and of food culture, say, in, in New York or London or Copenhagen, Paris, Hong Kong. But in Japan, you have that plus alpha, which is what we just talked about, the quality, the, the presentation, the ingredients. You know, we can talk about Hong Kong's great dining scene, but where do they get their food from? Quite a lot comes from Japan. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the high-end restaurants. So um, that in particular is, is, is where we're at right now, exciting. I think in the past, the idea of the chef or the figure of the chef, rather, was always quite a solitary one. But now we do see a lot more collaboration, a lot more cooperation. Um, and uh, one example that comes to mind um, is the Eat, Play, Works complex in Hiro. And um, I, I've written about the, about this project. And one of the points that struck me about that particular project is that the chefs are all friends so the owners of the of you know the the vendors are all friends and so there is a lot of the spirit of trying to help each other out instead of competing with each other they are really trying to work together to make that complex a dining destination um, but we also see other chefs that are going to be collaborating even on restaurants together like um, Zayu Hasegawa and Hiroyasu Kowate um, from Dan and Florilege respectively they're going to be launching a new casual um, kushiyaki place uh, this autumn. So between you, you've got at least 30 years of reporting on Tokyo as a food destination, as a food city. Yeah, there was what? life before Japan times as well. Yeah. <laughs> The extended, the forgotten years, the unwritten about years. Um, So what's been the most noticeable change in the Tokyo food scene over those years? Definitely, I would say the appreciation of Japanese food by people outside Japan. Food tourism, or tourism for food, Mm. or or tourism in general, but people discovering how great the food is here, and whichever way it comes about. And um, that's driven a whole industry to excel, actually, to, to improve, it's improved, it's boosted it. Um, it's driven up the number of restaurants because the number of people, number of available diners has gone up as more and more tourism has come in. And especially high, the high end, there, have been really, there are a lot of people coming in, spending a lot of money to eat at the best Japanese restaurants because they know these are among the best in the world. Mm. And um, they're also the most exclusive. So when you get to actually get that reservation, you can really feel good about yourself. Uh, <laughs> and and you know, when you get into Matsukawa, oh, the legendary Matsukawa, or Jiro, mm. or... or or even Den. I mean, it was, it was really, really hard to get a reservation at Den. Um, they're they're what, high up in Asian 50 best, world 50 best restaurant lists. Got a couple of Michelin stars. That's really driven the, the, the restaurant scene here. But, you know, to that point, I feel like um, that, that that is also like as good as it has been for the industry. There are also problems that come with that. And, Absolutely. you know, since, uh, <laughs> you know, since the pandemic has battered the hospitality industry as a whole, not just here, but around the world. And so when you have that sort of situation where you're a high-end restaurant or any kind of restaurant that has 
been dependent on a majority of um, of visitors as your primary guests. That's not. We're seeing that that's not sustainable. Well, it's not really sustainable for the country as a whole. This is. Um, we, we don't want to get into big politics here, but to drive your economy on on tourism is a is a very very um, poison chalice, if you ask me. No, I agree completely. I mean, of course, tourism needs to be a part of the economic strategy, but it can't be regarded as a silver bullet. And I'm really afraid that. A lot of the policy for the past 10 years have been, has been very much driven in that direction. Um, and we're seeing the effects of that now. And so, yeah, and then together with that, then we got some... The, the, the world's awareness of Tokyo has changed and, and, and people starting to look to Tokyo so much more. And including the, the guidebooks, Michelin, Michelin Guide. That made a huge difference too. Because if a place has stars, people want to go there. It's as simple as that. So that, I'd say the first Michelin Guide was 12 years ago now, something like that. Um, and that overnight changed people's perceptions of Japan. It changed Japanese people's perceptions of themselves too, actually. It really changed the way people saw their, their own industry and, 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 and customers in Japan just making decisions about where they want to eat based on a foreign guide. Very, it, very interesting. Did it change the food as well? It has done. I believe it has done. Um, I believe that it raised the bar in general because this being Japan, chefs want to give their very best, want to show themselves at their very best, want to show the country at their very best. And so I think this has pushed up people's, uh, among the people actually preparing the food in the restaurants, their desire to push themselves. And, and so I think it's been a, a, a very positive aspect as well as maybe a, a less than positive aspect. Oh, certainly. Certainly it has had a positive aspect. And um, and I think that it's been great for chefs to get the recognition. And like I said, these kind of things have been very good for the industry as a whole. But we have to figure out now how to move forward and not be overly reliant on a, on a single strategy. I think that leads us on quite nicely to where we are right now, which is August 2020. We've had six months of coronavirus plaguing well, everything really, uh, really transforming life and in particular hitting the restaurant and hospitality industry very hard because restaurants are the kind of places where COVID can be transmitted very easily. They were some of the first places to be asked to close early on in the pandemic here, although most have since reopened. So from what the two of you have seen, how is the industry coping? That's a really big question too. I mean, Robbie, do you want to start? Sure. Restaurants are really having to tighten their belts. A number have already gone under. Not as many as I thought, actually, would I th- um, that, but, I mean, some fairly well-known names um, have had just sort of either announced they're going to close or have actually shut up shop. The first one I, that really surprised us was um, Tokyo Mimiu is a, is a chain of, of udon, udon restaurants based in Kansai in, in Osaka area, but they closed all six of their Tokyo branches, which... I thought, all six? Wow. I mean, but that was early on, too. That was um, May. And then since then, especially at the high end, you know, it's, it's, mm. there's the, the, they don't have the margins. And high end is not just necessarily like a, an exclusive uh, counter restaurant for six or eight, or which is kind of what we think of. Think of. There are high end restaurants which, which serve maybe a, a, 200 people a night. They're sitting down on tatami mats. It's, it's a sort of ryote style they get parties of from from uh, companies or from 
weddings or, or any, any sort of celebrations. Mm. And people are just cancelling left, right and centre. So they're left with huge premises, huge staff, uh, staff levels. It's just unsustainable. So um, quite, a, quite a well-known place in Yokohama called Hanasato already, already is shut, shut down. I've heard of other places in Kansai very much teetering on the edge. The restaurants that I uh, know best, which tend to be independent, small places with, with, with uh, independent chefs, so far everyone's just hanging in there. But they're hanging in there for what? Because if the government doesn't allow in tourists, which is uh, at this point it can't do, I mean, it's not even allowing permanent residents back in the mm. country. It, but if it's not allowing in tourists, then uh, that's like, um, for many of these restaurants, that's just a huge chunk of their, of their clientele. F- initially, when, when, there was, uh, when this happened, a lot of, lot of local people who had always wanted to go to restaurants actually seized the chance. Yes, I can get into this restaurant that I could never, I always wanted to and never could. But more and more, people are maybe just reluctant to go out or to or to spend the money they don't there's this un- uncertainty about the future economically you know we're on the edge of a you know uncertainty here yeah the idea of spending tens of thousands of yen or even significantly less than that on expensive meals becomes a lot less appetizing when you don't know if you'll be employed for the next year and it becomes much harder to budget those kinds of things out. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, the recession is something that is a bigger threat to the hospitality industry almost, you know, um, more so than the COVID pandemic because of that very thing. Certainly, we've seen huge negative impacts as a result of COVID. Um, Like what Robbie was saying, uh, we haven't seen as many bankruptcies as had been predicted up to this point. However, that number is definitely going to increase. We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. Um, But even among the bankruptcies we have seen, around 30% are restaurants or bars. That's a lot. Mm. Um, You mean nationwide out of all the Yeah, nationwide. With regard to the viability of the model of each restaurant, I don't know. I feel like we've seen a very mixed response during the state of emergency, especially we started to see this in the the real city center, especially the financial districts, where there were a lot of office buildings and people were working from home, mm. we saw them empty out almost overnight. And um, and all of the restaurants and the bars and any of the cafes or e- any kind of service industry in those areas suffered greatly. But at the same time, in the more residential areas, neighborhood places seemed to be quite lively mm, all the way mm. through. You you know you saw everybody kind of adding takeaway um, options, not necessarily delivery, but a lot of course delivery delivery shot up. Um, but even still, dining in, there were so many people um, going out and supporting these local restaurants. Also, those um, Robbie mentioned those large restaurants really suffered. But the ones that have very small seats, a small number of seats, like six or eight, were able to kind of, I think, um, weather the storm a bit more because mm. they were able to control their overhead and leverage their like fixed costs and um, 
And the loyalty of their customers, I suppose, as well. Right. So, like, a lot of factors were involved, but I think that in some ways they were able to manage it a bit more. Do you think this spells the end of the high-end restaurant, the kind of thing that can only exist in the perfect conditions? No way. No No. way. No. No. I mean, is it it going to stop people buying high-end cars or going on high-end holidays? The people who can will. Yeah. But um, I think it's just a little bit too early to to really know what's going to happen yet because we're in the dead season now. I mean, this is the middle of summer where nobody feels very hungry anyway. Mm. A lot of people have gone away on holiday, even though they shouldn't have done, or you know, gone back to their hometowns, or just headed for the mountains. Just not so many people in Tokyo right now. Exactly. So restaurants, anywhere at this time of year, it's their lowest season. Come the end of September, we will really know for sure. I think everyone's got to eat, no matter on what level, but I think high end, there will be the a, a thinning out between the really good ones and the pretenders, sheep and the goats, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, I think so. But you do have surprises like the, as the well. The tuna like, and the yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> sardine. <laughs> but you do have surprises as well. You know, one restaurant that we've all been very supportive of, we all ate at, was Inua. And that restaurant, I don't think, was a pretender and everything seemed like it was on the up and up for them. They'd just been voted into the Asia's Top 50 restaurants list. They just got two Michelin stars back in November, a couple of months before the pandemic really gripped. And yet they were one of the first names to go when, you know, everything did hit the fan, um, which is, yeah, a, a real shame for them. And especially when they had support of such a big company as well. It's a shame because that restaurant contributed so much to um, the creativity in the food scene, um, like in terms of encouraging people to experiment a lot more. But again, like, you know, um, what we were talking about earlier, when they did the cost analysis, they were worried that that at least until this point, um, that the majority of their that their restaurant base was um, largely supported by visiting business tourists, um, et cetera. Hmm. So I think that it was that concern that really sealed their fate. You know, it's dead or and it was closed, but it's not necessarily dead. Hmm. So I think uh, Thomas Frebble, the chef, is very keen to re-emerge in some other guys. Just as its current model, it's, um, I, can't, I can't see that coming back. Mm-hmm. I would love to see it coming back, but I... I Certainly not for a couple of years because the economy isn't there. I'm just very, very happy that it came. It happened at all mm. that, that, that we we've had that for two years, um, and I'm looking forward to what comes next. Mm. I was um, speaking with Hiroyuki Sato of um, Hakoku the other day, and um, he was talking. We were, of course, kind of discussing this topic, and um, he was saying that we had been in a sushi boom. Mm. for the past few years with so many... The sushi um, getting larger and larger well, and larger. sushi, <laughs> no, <laughs> not exactly. Um, with so many investors keen to back um, young sushi chefs that had maybe worked at Sushi Saito or, you know, um, some other prestigious places. Um, and he said, you know, that is, that is over now. We have already entered into a new era and... Um, we will see a thinning out of um, high-end sushi restaurants and we're going to all have to... He's like, I feel like I'm starting my business from zero again, um, where it's like 
you know, not trying to be the most luxurious kind of um, place, but it's like how to really meet the needs of the consumers now, um, how to, and he said, like, really um, focusing a lot on service, how to make it the best service experience for people. Hmm. It's going to be increasingly important going forward. You kind of had all these fragile birds living in a endangered ecosystem for a while, yes. Mm, it was just an artificial, you know, like, anytime you have a bubble, it's just, it's not reality. We'll be back after this. Hi, this is Claire Williamson, the food editor here at the Japan Times. Like all of you, I'm constantly looking for ways to survive Japan's sweltering summers. And that's where Makiko Ito's classic potato salad recipe comes in. It's cool and creamy with little pops of freshness from the cucumber and onion, and I'm completely addicted. This is just one of the delicious seasonal recipes that are available for free to Japan Times readers online at jtimes.jp slash kitchen. Robbie, talking of bubbles, you've written your column for the JT since the late 1990s, but you've lived in Japan since long before that. Do you think there are any parallels between what's happening now and what happened with the crashing of Japan's economic bubble at the end of the 80s, early 90s? It actually reminds me of what happened in the 19, late 1980s. What happened in Japan in the 80s was the yen got revalued. All of a sudden, Japan was nouveau riche. It was building like nothing before. It was buying Van Gogh paintings and brand buildings and brand name buildings in New York City and, and stuff. And it kind of went crazy on restaurants too. A lot of really interesting restaurants, that sort of um, very early days of fusion, fusion food, which mostly was disaster. The F word. <laughs> but sometimes was absolutely fabulous, hmm. that other F word. Um, <laughs> I love we have like two sides of the coin, yeah. optimism and the other. No, no, I totally agree about f- fusion is con- confusion food. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was a time when we, the experimentation started. And also we had chefs coming in from Hawaii and America doing... Um, sort of a, a mashup of stuff, but the, on the on the on the best level, it really really worked. Usually, it was more Japanese chefs taking on outside influences. You know, it was there was a point at which it was anathema. It was really a shame on your ancestors, really, <laughs> to include tomatoes in in Japanese food in washoku. Mm-hmm. So to add a, a tomato to a miso shiru, miso soup, was like. That is radical. Left field. I mean, now it's like you, we're putting everything and everything to see I, what works. The tomato works. ramen is yeah, exactly. a really good tomato well, ramen. I mean, like, it, just like that, that example reminded me too um, of um, Hyote in Kyoto, um, which is, you know, this pillar of kaiseki cuisine and it's been going on for 400 years or more than 400 years. And one of their dishes is sashimi with a tomato water condiment rather than soy sauce. I mean, this is one of the most traditional uh, restaurants. Daring. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but yeah, the, but like that's a kind of example of how, of how they could, some of these um, innovations are very subtle but have, you know, really insinuated themselves quite deeply in the, in the, the cuisine. But do you think Japan's food scene emerged stronger as a result of the crash? Did the restaurants that made it through the period end up as better ones you know not to sound too darwinian but if the weaker restaurants 
closed now? Could we end up with a stronger food scene at the other end of this? I'm trying to think of any restaurants that kind of hit the headlines in, in the sort of, you know, 1990-ish that are still with us. The ones that survived are the ones that were always were, were, were here already. And the ones that came, that, that, are, that are with us now, probably all started since then. There are sort of echoes of that still, still with us. For example, Spago came in. He was, he was the big deal um, with his exotic pizzas and Californian this and that, Californian rolls too, that emerged during that time here. But um, pretty much all that's gone by the, by the wayside. However, echoes of that have come through and there are now, there are now you know, as you know, Tokyo is probably a, one of the top countries for eating pizza. They have the, some of the best pizza in the world here. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not know that. Uh, <laughs> you know. It is. Um, and there are also, also this laid the seeds for a lot of the modern, modern cuisine that we, we see, think today of as being Japanese, but is actually modern Japanese. Yeah, to me, this feels like a real moment where those that can adapt successfully will end up in the strongest position for better or for worse, for the food scene. Melinda, we talked quite a lot before we started recording about the new cocktail pop-up at the SG Club, which is a really well-known cocktail bar in Tokyo. Um, They reacted to the coronavirus by cutting their numbers of visitors coming to the bar, but raising prices with this new food cocktail pairing experience, which I've got to say is amazing and and tons of fun. But what other adaptations have we seen to try and help restaurants stay afloat during this period? I did see one policy, one exciting policy announcement, which I don't feel like I've seen the realisation of, which was that Tokyo was going to allow much more outdoor seating and more alfresco dining. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about that, but I haven't really seen that. um, I haven't seen that widely implemented. Have you? Well, didn't that proposal come up during the rainy season? Yeah, yeah, Japan is not the best place for outdoor dining. You like you have two two of the four seasons, but you just have two where it's at all feasible. That's sort of late spring and and and, and early to early to mid autumn. Otherwise, it's too humid, too hot, or too wet. Right. <laughs> I mean, cold. but I mean, most places have not most. I can't say most, but a lot of places have added like one or two tables outside or some seats where people can sit. Um, just yeah, as we're reaction to this but um in terms of one thing that comes to mind from the drinks world is um bottled cocktails um this is uh something that we never really saw here before um before this happened but some of the top um bartenders here like um uh, Hiroyasu Kayama from Benfidic, Shuzo Nagamo from the Mixology group are making bottled cocktails so you can have the experience. Well, of course, you can't have the experience no, of taste. going to the bar, but, but you can have um, one of their you know, signature cocktails at home. Um, that's an interesting development. Um, from the sake world, one thing that you see is they're trying to make smaller bottles, uh, smaller format bottles, so that they can um, be sold uh, with delivery and takeout. Mm. 
One of the interesting things is that a lot of sake breweries are making some sake exclusively for certain izakayas as a sort of sh- like show of support mm-hmm. for the industry um, to give people like some motivations to go to these places because, of course, they also really depend on restaurants surviving. Um, you know, with as with wine, most of the sake that is um, that is drunk in Japan. Um, and elsewhere, is actually consumed in a restaurant. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things we're not going to have any time to go into today, I'm already thinking about booking a second session with you guys, but, you know, it's, it's the farmers and the mm, farmers yeah. as well is, is and the produce providers. It's generally like without restaurants, it, it changes that dynamic so much as well. Um, Just talking about sake, though, going back there, mm. yeah. some brewers actually have way too much stock. They, either they, either their export markets have d- disappeared That's or, or their domestic point. markets have, dr- have shriveled because the, the restaurant world is, is is but other others have run out of stock yeah like like, like dasai, um, dasai, dasai yeah. and, and yamaguchi Yama, uh, Yama prefecture mm. um didn't count on having <laughs> so much <laughs> selling so much and then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's run out of enough stock. but that really is an exception um a lot of the brewers are they they really don't want to cut back production because you know they want to keep buying the rice from their farmers but um some people have already had to decide to mm. you know scale back production um there are some breweries that are selling their existing inventory at a much discounted rate like up to 30% off um to try to clear space and um so they can produce at the same level that they had for the next brewing season which is going to be starting in in the autumn mm. Um, what do you guys think about the rise of takeaway and like the, the takeout options being offered and also, you know, Uber Eats and other delivery services have really come. I just had only some, I just had some great like pizza twice. from PST just the other day. I got the <laughs> delivery. He also is doing, he's doing a frozen cheesecake, which I snuck one of those in too, like uh, seven or eight, seven or eight pies of, of his, of his great pizza. And, and actually it tastes it's not the same as being there, but it's it's good, especially if you burn it a little bit like he does. <laughs> burn the, the dough. So I've been doing a, a fair amount of buying here and there um, um, online, supporting people where I can. With you know, the only way I can is I I, I want to keep eating at their restaurants. I want to keep supporting places to stay stay open. I think amazing the fast reaction. I think. People have done really well here in, in, in converting the menus to, to takeout and delivery. I'm not a big fan of the Uber Eats model, but, uh, you know, that sort of uh, gig economy is, is just oppressive. <laughs> However, it exists. Um, we don't have to support it. We can. There are other ways of doing getting around it, I think, um, a bit like... We don't all have to buy our books from Amazon. We can buy them from independent bookstores, etc. So the same with food. I'm waiting for the den takeaway. <laughs> oh, I told him. I said we should do like a, a bucket of Dentucky fried chicken. Dentucky fried chicken. Absolutely. Um, but it's been an amazing, amazing situation being able to uh, actually sample some of the best restaurants from a distance. Just get a taste. It's, mm. not, it's not the same. You're saving a lot of money too, but... Oh, Narisawa, yes, you need 30,000, 40,000 yen high-end box per person um, delivery. Takeaway of, box. Yes. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you live near enough, you'll be delivered to your door <laughs> by a guy 
with the white gloves on <laughs> in a limousine. <laughs> Probably with a complimentary champagne or something. Uh, yeah, um, for that price. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, takeaway and delivery has been very important to help sustain some of these restaurants in the short term. It's not a long-term strategy by any means, um, especially when you consider that most of these restaurants really, really need 35 to 40% of their sales to be alcohol. Mm. This is where restaurants make money. And so that's why I feel that these restrictions, again, the second wave of restrictions has is going to be very painful for a lot of um, restaurants, but of course, bars. If you have to stop serving by 10 p.m., then, you know, when you think about a lot of bars, they don't even open until 7 p.m. Um, and they have been some of the hardest hit in this entire, um, in this entire pandemic time. But I, I hope that uh, one good thing out of this, um, that comes out of this, will be um, increase in day drinking, which is really... <laughs> what I'm like pushing for. I have been pushing for for many for, years for now. For at least nine years in your column. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I feel like I'm the only person who's like talking about day drinking in the Japan Times. Final, final question, because I know you have to both run off to various commitments. We've been talking a lot about Tokyo uh, and coronavirus, but outside of the capital and on a slightly lighter note, where's your favourite area to eat? For me, it would always, my heart rests with the Yatai in Fukuoka. Oh, <laughs> that's why That's where I first lived in Japan. Okay. Is, is there life outside of Tokyo? Yeah, of course there is. <laughs> Kyoto, Osaka is, definitely has to be as... I always say, you know, Tokyo is the best, has even some of the best Kyoto food in, in, in Japan, but actually it's not the same as eating Kyoto food in Kyoto, yeah. obviously. Uh, yeah, I obviously, think that people in Kyoto would obviously. definitely agree with and, that. And actually, <laughs> actually um, the difference, there is still a huge difference between Kansai, Kanto, Osaka, uh, uh, Tokyo, and Osaka restaurants, there's some great restaurants down there. And, and I could spend, if I wasn't paid to write, Tokyo food file, I would go off and write Kansai food file, mostly around Osaka and Kyoto. Gosh, I mean, the thing is, it's so difficult to think about um, when you are considering all the different regions in Japan. There's so much out there. I'm going to go ahead and put my vote in for Tohoku. Okay. So the, you know, relatively unexplored north. Huh? Rayman? Oh, the Rayman! Um, that's There's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, like just talking about like uh, the sheer quality of the ingredients there, um, particularly the seafood, but also the vegetables, um, because you know it's a hugely important agricultural area mm. all throughout. You know, um, Iwate, um, you know, Aomori and uh, Miyagi, etc. Um, and it's actually a beautiful. I mean, the landscape is beautiful. The air is great. And great it's sake. like, you know, yeah, amazing sake. Um, and not to sound like a big cheapo or anything, but the prices are amazing. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, think if about this. To Tokyo prices. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, but think sure. about this. Like, some of, like, a lot of the seafood is sourced from there. But, like, you go up there and you are getting, like, an amazing deal. I mean, like, and even things like, you know, matsutake, um, like, you go, you can go there and just like pick them instead of paying 30,000 yen. Well, and we go back to your original point, which you can go into a little hole in the wall and get the best, best crab or, or, yeah. or ikura 
uni, these you know, ingre- the best ingredients. You don't have to do much to it. Sashimi, it's just it's all there. Well, Robbie, Melinda, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I realise we've only really scratched the surface of this topic, so we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That was Melinda Joe and Robbie Swinnerton. If you're ever in need of a restaurant recommendation in Tokyo, definitely check out their articles in the Japan Times and follow their social media accounts. They're posting stuff there all the time. Links to all of those are in the episode notes. Thanks as always for listening to the podcast. And until next week, say it with me now. Podskarisama.